All right, thanks be to God. Hey, everyone, happy Easter, and Christ is risen. One more time, Christ is risen. For those of you who are visiting us as our guest, accepting the invitation of a friend, coworker, or sibling, thank you so much for accepting their invitation. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my joy and privilege in sharing today's word. I think we have a little bit of feedback, if we could get that adjusted. And as they work on that, would you now bow your heads and join me in prayer as we ask for the Lord's blessing. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would indeed minister to us as we celebrate this glorious Easter Sunday and all that it represents. Father, you know all that we have gone through. You know all that we are, um, all the circumstances that we are in. And Father, we pray now that regardless of where we might be, you would minister And Lord, we also ask that you would continue to encourage us in the midst of all of the troubles, the trials, the sorrows, and the sufferings that we have had to endure. Father, we pray that the hope that is embedded on this Lord's Day would continue to flourish from here on out. And we ask, O oh God, that you would bless especially those amongst us here who are investigating the Christian faith. Lord, would you speak and would you empower and would you bring salvation to them? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen, and amen, uh, amen excuse me. <laughs> you know, when most of us read the Bible, the thing that tends to stick out the most are those incredible stories where certain characters experience some sort of amazing supernatural feat and phenomena. Some examples, the Exodus, you have the story of a man named Moses leading the entire nation of Israel out against the terrorizing armies of Egypt. And what does Moses do? He implores to God who proceeds to cut the Red Sea in half, split it apart, providing ample space and dry ground for the people of God to get to safety. Or there you have the story of Joshua who witnesses firsthand the angel of the Lord crumbling down the city walls of Jericho. How? By commanding the people of Israel to march around it seven times and as they do, play instruments as they are marching. These are the kinds of stories that are filled with the pages of scriptures, and quite honestly, they are so moving and inspiring. And yet, be that as it may, these are the kinds of stories that honestly don't feel personally relatable to us, not becoming very relevant to us. I mean, when was the last time any of you walked through a massive body of water on dry ground? When was the last time you ever see an entire city destroyed just by blowing a bunch of trumpets? Now, by saying this, I'm not in any way implying that these stories, these events did not happen in history, for I surely believe they did. But what I am saying is that these experiences are at a, such a different categorical level that it makes the characters who had these experiences that much more far removed from us. I mean, honestly, what possible connection could we have with the likes of Moses? What personal sense of commonality could we share with someone with the likes of Joshua or David? If he asked most people today, they would probably say not much, if at all. And one person that most people could feel this irrelevance towards in the Bible is none other than Jesus Christ himself. 
You know, if you ever read the gospel stories and learn of the things that Jesus did, the priorities he pursued, the experiences that he had, you can't help but to feel that this Jesus character, whoever he was, just doesn't seem that practically relatable to me, and therefore he's not very personally relevant for my life. And indeed, if you look at the stats of the rate of deconversion and people getting their faith deconstructed where people are leaving Christianity by the droves, it seems that, yes, this seems to be the growing consensus of many in our society today. But what if I told you that this consensus has it completely wrong? What if I told you that Jesus Christ is the most relevant person that you will ever encounter in your whole life? What if I told you he is the most relevant person, period, for everybody? You might be wondering, well, how can that be? Well, I'll explain. But first, we're continuing our sermon series entitled The I Am Sayings of Jesus, where we're taking a look at the seven statements of Christ recorded in the Gospel of John, where he says something about himself by introducing it with the phrase, I am. And today, we're going to take a look at the I am statement of Christ that is especially relevant on Easter Sunday, where he says the following of himself, I am the resurrection, I am the life. And as we parse out what Jesus means from that very statement, we're going to come to understand why he's the most relevant person that you will ever encounter and why he must be the most important priority of your life. And so with that stage set, three things that I want to share with you that makes Jesus the most relevant person in your life ever. Number one, Jesus is relevant because he has power over death. Number two, Jesus is relevant because he gets angry at death. And finally, Jesus is relevant because he resurrected from death. Three reasons why he is so relevant to you is because he has the power over death, he gets angry at death, and he resurrected from death. So let's begin now with the first point. Jesus is relevant because he has power over death. Let's, look at look, let's take a look at how our passage begins. Verse 1, we read, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. Now, unlike other stories that we read in Scripture, the experience that poor Lazarus is going through is one that we can all easily relate to and find relevant as well. Because we, as well as our loved ones, all have to deal with the recurring problem of sickness. Amen? In fact, some of my kids are going through sickness as we speak. Don't worry, it's not COVID, okay? We, we made sure, right? We all have to deal with the recurring issue of sickness. And you might be tempted to think that maybe Lazarus has a little bit of the sniffles going on in our passage, but no. If you read carefully, it's clear that Lazarus is in a very severe condition. This is not something that's going to be overcome by a couple of Advil, a hot shower, and a bowl of hot soup. No, Lazarus is so sick that his two sisters, Mary and Martha, are filled with such duress and such desperation that they feel the need to reach out to Jesus Christ in the hopes that he'll quickly respond and do something about it. Now, I want to pause for just a moment and consider the distress and the despair of these two sisters. Because out of all the experience that we read about in this passage, that hits home for many of us in this room doesn't it? In fact, I'm willing to bet there's someone in this room right now where this feels especially relevant because there's someone in your life right now who you deeply love, deeply cherish, who's not in a very good condition whatsoever, and you have no idea what the next few days, few weeks, few months might be in terms of their outcome, right? And if you're one of those blessed souls who currently right now don't have to deal with that problem, hear me when I say this, you will. You 
will have to face this issue where you or your loved one is under severe health crisis. And the reason why is because the Bible makes clear that every person that walks on this earth is going to have to eventually and unavoidably face what Scripture calls the shadows of death. The shadows of death. You see, as much as modern medicine, technology, and science has done so many great wonders to delay death, the fact of the matter is you and I are always in a wrestling match with death throughout our lives to where eventually death will pin us down six feet under. And because that is so, do you realize what this means? It means death is coming after you and your loved ones. Death is chasing you down and death will eventually catch up to you guys and death will eventually conquer all death is the greatest problem of mankind making death your greatest problem because every person that is on this earth will have to face death and no person on this earth has been able to fix it except one see and it's in the shadowy presence of this thing known as death that is causing Mary and Martha to shiver to their deepest hearts, manifested in the severe sickness of their brother, Lazarus. Now, in verse 4, we read that Jesus finally catches word of Lazarus' condition. But then he does something that we don't expect, because usually we would expect someone to normally drop everything that they would do and quickly run to the side of the person who's deathly ill. But Jesus, to our astonishment, doesn't do that. What does he do? He intentionally waits two extra days before he even heads in the direction of Mary and Martha's home, verse 6. And that is just so confusing. Why would Jesus do something like this? Especially when you consider in verse 5 that it says that he loved this family. He loved Lazarus. It's not the kind of behavior that you would expect from someone who loves a person who's severely ill. What could explain such odd behavior? Well, Jesus actually tells us the explanation in verse 4 when he says, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In other words, by waiting for Lazarus to die before he even gets to his home, he is going to use that as an opportunity to challenge the pervasive assumption that Mary, Martha, and all of us have regarding the relevancy of Jesus. More specifically, the relevancy of his power. Let me explain. If you take a look at how Mary and Martha responds to Jesus when he finally shows up to their place, it's virtually identical. They almost say word for word the same thing. Verse 21, Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 32, Mary says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, just from the surface of those statements, it's clear that these two ladies believe that Jesus had power to do something while Lazarus was still alive. But if you dig a little deeper to their words, you come to see an underlying assumption as well. And that assumption is that Jesus' power is only relevant before death, not after. The moment Lazarus died, whatever Jesus' power was, whatever it was capable of, was completely pointless and impotent and irrelevant the moment Lazarus breathed his last. And the idea here is pretty clear. These ladies believe that Jesus is only relevant for the here and now and not the then and after. And this idea, sadly, is still being taught by many churches today. If you're here 
investigating Christianity and you've been surrounded by a lot of Christian friends throughout your life, you may have heard some of these things that I'm talking about. So, for example, some of you may have been told that Christianity has power to change your life morally. Yeah, it has ethical and, and um, moral principles to where if you abide by it, you'll be empowered to live a very decent life where you'll be respected and revered by the outside community. Or you've been told that Christianity provides some amazing psychological benefits to where if you believe in the promises of the Bible, you'll have less self-condemning thoughts, less self-critical attitudes, less depression, less uh, low self-esteem, and instead have a strong psychological resilience. Others of you have been taught that if you embrace the Christian faith, that you'll be empowered to live a life of community. In an age where people are so isolated and so antisocial, you'll be able to come out of that and embrace and benefit from a social communal blessing. So many blessings that you're empowered to have and to experience if you become a Christian right here and now. But one thing that Jesus is telling us in our passage is that his power is not just confined in the land of the living It is especially powerful in death and after death. Jesus' power is relevant, not just while you're under this world's sun, but even after your life gets extinguished. That is what Jesus means when he says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus is making the audacious claim that he is the most relevant person of all because he can make irrelevant the most relevant problem you need to face and cannot fix on your own. That is what Jesus is saying. And it is all somehow, some way, tied to his resurrection. And in just a moment, he's going to break down how all of that works. But in order for him to do that, he first has to explain how the problem of death even arose in the first place because it's when you understand that that you can understand how you can acquire this most relevant power you desperately need for the most relevant problem that you have to face. And to explain what I mean, let me go to my next point. Jesus is relevant because he gets angry at death. So in verse 33 of our passage, Jesus finally arrives at Mary and Martha's home. And as he shows up, he is bombarded and he is surrounded by a bunch of people weeping and wailing. See, one thing that you have to understand about the traditions of the ancient world is that whenever a person in a community passed away, the thing that was considered culturally respectful and appropriate is to have members of that community gather in clusters and just scream at the top of their lungs, wailing over the death of this person. And in verse 33, Jesus responds to all of it. What does it say his response was? He was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. Now, I'm not very happy with that word trouble as a translation of the original Greek in which all of this is written in. Because that word is actually more accurately translated as fuming with anger. Not the superficial mild anger that you get when someone cuts you off in traffic. I'm talking about fuming, blood-curdling anger anger, like murderous rage. That's how Jesus is feeling about the situation. So here's the question. What is it about the situation that he's in that's making him so angry like this? Well, our passage only gives us four possible options. Option number one, maybe he's angry at the two sisters. Maybe he's angry at Mary and Martha. Maybe they're weeping and so forth. There's a lack of faith, and he's just so fed up with that immature display of, of doubt and, and despair, and he's, he's just losing it. Option number two, 
Maybe he's angry at these weepers and wailers. He can't stand hypocrites, and he knows these people are just faking and using this poor tragedy as a way to spotlight themselves, to show off how loud they can cry. And maybe that's why he's so angry. Option number three, maybe he's angry at Lazarus himself, thinking something to the effect of, man, what did this fool do now that caused his own death that's making it all terrible for us at this moment? Or option number four, he's angry at death itself. And according to all the Bible scholars, they're unanimous. Jesus is angry. He is wrathfully rageful at death, at death. Now, for those of you here investigating the Christian faith, this may sound ridiculous. This may sound silly because you were raised in a culture to believe that death is just a normal, natural, and therefore necessary milestone of all existence. It's just part of the circle of life. But when you consider how all the great cultures and how all the great religions responded towards death, it was always seen as something wrong and something that you should fight against with all your heart. In fact, even in our own culture, we hear this contentious language being used. We say things like, you know, Bobby is battling cancer. Why do we use words of fighting that way? Or we hear things like, my mother just got this diagnosis, but I'm not worried because she's a fighter. Why do we say it like that? In our poetry, we hear this same idea being conveyed. You know, um, Dylan Thomas, the great poet, once wrote these words to express what he thought should be the universal response to our own impending death when he once penned these words, quote, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the lights, end quote. There is pervasive historical agreement and universal consensus that when it comes to the greatest problem of mankind, our attitude should be that of furious anger and such unacceptableness to it. And the fact that Jesus gets angry in our passage is complete validation of that instinct. That's what we need to take away. But here's something interesting. Jesus' anger at the death of his loved one is very different than the kind of anger you and I might have when someone we love dies. Because typically, the reason we get so angry when someone we cherish is gone, it's because of the pain and sorrow that is the result of being separated from them due to their death. But there is another painful problem in the death of his loved one for Jesus that makes him so angry. And to explain what that is, consider this explanation from theologian B.B. Warfield as he tells us, in his own reflections of this passage, he says, quote, It is death that is the object of Jesus' wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death, Satan. It is he that Jesus came into the world to destroy. Jesus is angry at death because he's ultimately angry at the one who's responsible for bringing death into our world. And that is the evil one, Satan. And when you grasp that, then you understand the proper understanding of how we should view death. Because according to Jesus, death is not the normal, natural ending of biological processes. No, for him, death is the most atrocious evil done to man. Why? Because the source of this evil is actually the source of all evil, the evil one, Satan. And he has one main agenda for your death and the death of your loved ones. It's not simply to separate you from them. No, Satan's greater priority, his greater plan 
through your death or the death of your loved ones is to separate you all against the one who loves you most, and that's God, God. Now, here's the kicker, folks. The Bible tells us that Satan on his own, he himself doesn't have the power of death. In other words, he does not have the intrinsic capability of causing our own death. But one thing he is capable of and he's very powerfully good at is lying. Lying. This is why he is called the deceiver more than any other title in Scripture. And Satan is able to separate us from God through his deception, just like a homewrecker can separate a loving husband and loving wife from one another, dissolving a happy home. See, if Satan can lie to us, convincing us that the God who really loves us, in fact, really hates us and is hostile towards us and wants nothing for our good, to where it inspires us to be disloyal and disobedient, Satan knows that God will be obligated by his just and holy nature to cut us out of his life. Because the Bible tells us that God is a holy God, and anyone who violates his law cannot be in his presence. Because sin does that very thing. And so his very nature requires him to punish sinners by separating himself from the sinner through the sinner's death. And Satan knows this. This is why he always appeals to God's own law and uses it against our relationship with God. To where he's always making the demand, the proper, might I add, demand to God. Your holiness demands that you punish them. And so you must. And God has to. This is why Jesus is so angry at the death of Lazarus. Because it represents Satan's legitimate claim for Lazarus to suffer for his sins by being dead. And because that is so, Jesus is fueled with rage. Now, if this was all there was to the story, this would be a terrible, tragic tale. But thankfully, there's more to the story. And we get a hint of it at the actual anger of Jesus's feelings towards Lazarus' death. Let me explain what I mean. Now, it's obvious to, to me that none of you in here have been consumed by death like Lazarus in our passage. You're all alive, and hopefully you're all very well. But that isn't to say that death has not gotten a bite out of you already, where it got to sample a little bit of what it will have in full the day you breathe your last breath on this earth. And because that is so, that also means that you have taken a little bit of taste of death prematurely before your time, and it all has to do because of your sins. Let me give you some real examples of people that I've known. I know a woman around my age, yet when she was in her early 20s, lived a crazy, crazy promiscuous life. I mean, really just out, out of the world, like putting, putting sorority girls to shame kind of thing. No offense to any sorority people in here. I know that's not the... That's not how it always is. But you know what I'm saying. This girl just lived a crazy life. And all of that activity resulted in her catching a, some sort of venereal disease that has now made her unable to have kids. Yeah. The one thing that she desperately wished she could have. Her sins resulted in a dead womb. I know of a man who when he was younger, had little kids, was given what he thought once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but he also knew he couldn't pursue this opportunity and still be daddy at the same time. And so he made the choice of abandoning his family to pursue this career, only to fast forward 12 years later that he made the worst mistake of his life. And now he's stuck with a job that he hates, 
and with estranged children who hate him more. His sins resulted in a dead family. I know of a pastor who used to preach such life-transforming messages that quadrupled the size of his congregation. And yet multiple indiscretions with women in his church caused him to lose it all. This pastor's sins resulted in a dead church. Death has a way of kind of sampling our lives ahead of schedule. And it all has to do with our sins. Which means, who gives Satan the power of death over us? It's us, isn't it? Right? And when we come to that realization, the one person that we can end up being so angry at, to the point of despising, to the point of wishing their destruction, is ourselves. Right? Where you even would say such audacious things like, I don't even want to be forgiven. I don't even want to be rescued. I just want to die. But the fact that Jesus gets angry at the death of Lazarus and not at Lazarus himself tells us that our Jesus does not agree. And this is evident by what the Jews could obviously see of Jesus as he responds to Lazarus' death. Verse 36, see how he loved him. Friends, if you're at a point in your life where everyone will be at some point, where you realize that you are responsible for letting death get ahead of schedule in your life or worse, in the lives of your loved ones because you made the mistake, you failed, you've sinned, and you're so tempted to think that all you want for yourself is your own destruction, you need to hear me when I say this. Your God does not agree, and he will never agree to that, even for those who tragically, ultimately, end up in that eternal condition. Take a listen to what our God says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn, turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? When you sin against God, that results in you causing a little bit of death to come into your life or worse, death to come into the lives of your loved ones, you may be tempted to think that your God is saying, I can't wait, you get your just desserts. I can't wait for you to suffer. I can't wait for you to die wrong. Jesus is saying, your death does not give me pleasure. Your death makes me angry. That is not what I want. And that is not how you should end up. And the question that you might be wondering is, how can God be this way? How can Jesus be this way when usually if we were probably in his place, our reaction would be like, good, that's what you get. But instead he says, no, that's not what I want. The answer leads him to my final point. Jesus is relevant because he resurrected from death. Read again verse 23, 26 of our passage. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Here Jesus has just cut to the chase and told Martha, look, your brother is going to rise again. He's not going to stay dead. And Martha just responds with a very nice, polite, superficial theological statement. Yes, Lord, I know he's going to rise again on the last day. 
You know how when you wish someone really sincerely every New Year, hey, happy New Year. I hope it's filled with a great, great, bountiful blessings. And they simply respond, yeah, happy New Year to you too. Like, you know they don't mean it. They're just being polite. That's what's happening here, right? Jesus is trying to be sincere, and Martha retorts with superficiality. And so Jesus says again, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this, Martha? And the reason why he's getting so agitated here is because he wants her to understand the relevancy of his words. What words am I speaking of? Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Here's the question. What does a person have to believe about Jesus in order for them to come from death to life? The answer, it's the gospel. The gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the story that says the eternal son of God, the second person of the triune head, came into the world as a mortal human being, Jesus Christ. Why? So that he could do what no one could do, and yet what they're all supposed to do. Jesus lived a life of perfect, holy obedience to God the Father, flawlessly, right? He lived a life that we could not live, even though we were supposed to. And not only that, Jesus suffered the fate of what we should have suffered. What did Jesus suffer? He suffered God severing, separating, segregating himself from him as he was dying on the cross. This is why Jesus cried out the cry of dereliction as he is dying on the cross. My God, my God, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus suffered the full penalty Satan wants of us every time he appeals to the law of God and tries to destroy our relationship with God. Jesus suffered that for us on our behalf. And in return, Jesus gave us something. He gave us all the rights and privileges and benefits that came from him living that perfect, holy, earthly life, which is what? Eternal fellowship with God. A relationship with God that cannot be smothered, that cannot be uh, broken down, that cannot be threatened by sin. Here's something that you need to understand. The Bible teaches us that Jesus lived A life of such holiness, such righteousness, that it actually exceeds the collective unrighteousness, the collective unholiness of all mankind. In other words, Jesus loved his father and obeyed his father in such a way that it exceeds the collective hatefulness, the collective disobedience of all humanity. This is why he rose again from the dead. You see, when Jesus died, if he had just stayed dead... That would have meant that his righteousness was insufficient in paying off the debt that the law of God demanded for human sin. But because he did rise again, that tells us that Jesus accrued such a wealth of righteousness that it more than covers the collected debt of human depravity. And because that is so, anyone who looks to Jesus as their Lord, as their Savior, gets credited all of that righteousness that covers your sin and then some. You see? This is how the most relevant problem that you have to face, that your loved ones have to face, become completely irrelevant. It comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The perfect righteousness that he lived out on your behalf So that any time Satan would dare to use 
the law of God, kind of like a notice payment of owing, God says it's paid in full, completely shutting his mouth forever. This, my friends, is how the greatest relevant problem of your life becomes the most insignificant, irrelevant problem that you don't have to worry about. It comes through the person of Christ. The question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? If you do, then my next charge to you is share it with those you love. Share the gospel. Share Christ with those that you love because if they hear it, if they believe it as well, not only will you and your loved ones share the most important person ever, God, but you will ensure that you and your loved one, even if you have to go through a season of temporary separation through either your death or their death, you know it will not last because at the end of it all, you and your loved ones will always be together, making the greatest problem of all the least irrelevant concern that you ever have to deal with. This is the promise of Easter. Let it be fulfilled in all of our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we think about what you are teaching us on this Lord's Day, that it would really resonate deep in our hearts in such a way that we would come to believe it. Not simply know it, not simply recognize it as truth, but surrender ourselves to it and to submit to it as something that we truly believe. Lord, I especially pray for those among us here who's at the point where they feel like they believe, but they need help with their unbelief. Lord, May your spirit be at work even now as I pray these words that it would penetrate deep into their hearts so that they would be able to experience the working, amazing power of God of regeneration and saving faith. Father, we thank you for sending your son. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've lived a perfect life on our behalf. And Holy Spirit, we give you praise for how you are using the righteousness of Jesus and making it manifest in our lives to where we get to live out its power even now. Oh, Lord, would you now bless this community and the members of it and those to whom they will reach so that we can make the greatest problem of man the most irrelevant issue that we do not have to be concerned with. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.